Hello everyone and welcome back to the Rudy Show podcast. I'm your host Ethan Rudlinger and today we'll be going over part one of the Gospel of Matthew. Flight to Egypt. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now I've been well acquainted with many Bible stories from a young age, and this one's no exception. So, King Herod sent his men to slaughter every male baby under the age of two years old throughout Bethlehem. And this was a brutal and violent act. So we'll continue reading. Herod kills the children. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The return to Nazareth. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. John the Baptist prepares the way. Now I feel like we're all well acquainted with the story of John the Baptist, the crazy wilderness preacher that survived on wild locusts and honey. We all know that John the Baptist is a voice of the man crying in the wilderness. So, here in Isaiah 43-8, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The voices said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In the beginning of this chapter, you'll notice it says, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's referring to John the Baptist, and this is confirmed by Jesus Christ himself later on. Now, moving on, John the Baptist prepares the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come into his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now you can clearly see that John the Baptist is sort of laying the groundwork for Jesus' arrival, for the beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry. He's planting this seed in the people's hearts that the Savior is coming, the Messiah is on his way. He is making straight the path for Jesus Christ to come into the world and begin preaching. I find it interesting that the Jews ultimately rejected salvation, particularly on the word of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was a Messiah, they were still holding on to the old covenant with Abraham, and they still are to this day. Actually, the Pharisees have reformed in Israel. But where John here says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we, are, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. And then he goes, well, this is sort of affirming the idea that we are not children of Abraham by blood. We're children of Abraham spiritually. And that's Abraham's true descendants, the true inheritors of the covenant that God made with Abraham are the ones that are his children spiritually. And this comes about through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, in this little analogy that he gives, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This analogy that he gives has to do with believers bearing good fruit. Even non-believers, if, if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't keep up with Jesus Christ, and you don't do good works that God has ordained beforehand for you to do, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. Then he goes on to say, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Who is he talking about? Jesus Christ. He's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. Now who, who is the wheat? What does the wheat represent in this analogy? The wheat are the believers, the ones that are faithful to the end, that run the race as Paul talks about. The ones that bear good fruit and do good works that God has ordained beforehand for us to do. 
the works that he has created us to do, the good that he has created us to do, and giving out the love that he's given to us. So when he clears his threshing floor, he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now what, what does a chaff represent? Here the chaff represents the unbelievers, those who do evil, those who despise and hate everything that's righteous, those that despise the righteous men of this world, those that do every form of evil just for the sake of doing it, for the sake of pleasure, for the sake of satisfying the flesh. Anybody that's not in Christ Jesus will be burnt up with the chaff. The Baptism of Jesus Then Jesus came from the Galilee to the Jordan to John be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Temptation of Jesus Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, oftentimes when we read this story about Jesus being tempted by Satan, we can sort of reflect on that, just thinking how many times we've been tempted to do something wrong. And we use Scripture to guard against that. We've used the Word of God. We've used the commandments of Christ to guard our hearts and minds against that. And that's what Paul says, I believe, in Romans to uh, equip the armor of God to withstand the wiles of the devil. Reading and being familiar with the scripture is an essential part of a Christian's life, and that truly equips you with spiritual armor that allows you to withstand sinful lusts and desires and temptations and whatnot. And that's sort of what this record here is conveying to us, because this is not written down for the gain of God, but for the gain of man, for the understanding of mankind. The Bible is a revelation to man. God made certain things known to us for a reason. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus Christ made it abundantly clear 
that no servant is greater than his master. Jesus Christ is a master, and we are the servants. All these things that Jesus Christ goes through in the Gospels and all these things that he had to endure, all this sort of selfless love and sacrifice and serving others that he did, he expects us to do the same, because no servant is greater than their master. Now continuing on, Jesus calls the first disciples. When walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. It's likely that the reason why they were so eager to follow Jesus is because Jesus was calling to these men as a rabbi to follow him, to imitate him, to do everything that Jesus does, and to learn everything that they can from him. So these uneducated fishermen are being called by a rabbi, which is usually an honor reserved for those that are, you know, really scholarly and intelligent. And these men likely thought that they never had a chance to be trained and taught under a rabbi, so they probably resigned themselves to a life of fishing. And... When Jesus called them, they felt that that was like their golden opportunity, so they rushed for it. Moving on. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. There's a page in between this that says, What is true repentance? In Matthew 3, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus' ministry by calling the people of Israel to repent. John, the Israel's first prophet in 400 years, proclaimed repentance not in Jerusalem or its temple, but in the desert wilderness. The desert reminds us of the wilderness where God purged Israel of sin after the Exodus. John's place was remote, a day's journey from Jerusalem. But people came from everywhere to hear him cry out, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in Matthew 3, 2. Lest anyone miss John's importance, Isaiah had foretold that his voice would cry, Prepare the way of the Lord, in Isaiah 43. John's food and clothing verified his austere message. Great crowds came to John and confessed their sins. Some were sincere in their repentance, and some were not. So what is true repentance? Some think repentance is a feeling of sorrow for misdeeds. Others say the Greek term for repent means to change the mind. But repentance shapes the whole person, mind, heart, and hands. To repent is to turn to God in faith, covenant loyalty, and obedience. Repentance is more than remorse that we hurt someone or a pang of guilt after getting caught. Judas felt remorse. What Paul called worldly sorrow and killed himself. In worldly sorrow, the sinner looks inward to his pain, shame, grief, or self-condemnation. Godly sorrow looks upward to God's grace in Christ. The sinner hopes for restoration to God and man. The Westminster Large Catechism calls repentance a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit. The sinner senses that his sin is repugnant, but that God is merciful. He hates his sins and turns from them all to God. We repent when we know that the Father forgives our sins for the sake of Christ and plan to walk with God in a new obedience. 
This is surely a great reason to run to God when we sin, rather than from Him. We're beginning again in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus ministers to great crowds. And when He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so His fame spread throughout all Syria, And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond the Jordan. So there's many, many, many miracles that Jesus Christ performed. There's many things that he did that are not recorded in the Gospels. But, as Paul says, all these things that he has done that are recorded in the Gospels are there so that we might believe. And they're for our benefit, not theirs, of course. So, now we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And here we go with the Beatitudes. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, The Sermon on the Mount, particularly the the Beatitudes, are interesting. Here in the footnotes, it says, The authoritative message of the Messiah, kingdom life for his disciples. This is the first of five major teaching sections in Matthew. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus explains the reality of discipleship in everyday world through the presence and power of the kingdom of God. These teachings form a challenging but practical system of ethics that Jesus expects his followers to live by in this present age. This Sermon on the Mount is probably a summary of a longer message that Jesus may have given a number of times in various forms. Then here, chapter 5, verse 1, Defining Mountain. Matthew does not give the location of this sermon. The traditional site is northwest of Capernaum on a ridge of hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. This ridge is likely also where Jesus went to a desolate place and where he went up on the mountain. He sat down. Teachers in Judaism typically taught while sitting. He taught them, that is, the disciples who had come to him. Moving on to chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. The Beatitudes, from Latin for word blessed and happy, all begin with blessed are. These short statements summarize the Sermon on the Mount. Now, with these beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Jesus is sort of given these little parameters of what to expect in discipleship. So, verse 3, blessed, blessed is a state of well-being in relationship to God. The poor in spirit are those who recognize they need God's help. Verse 4, those who mourn, recognizing one's sin should lead to mourning and longing for God's forgiveness and healing. Verse 5, the meek do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength. Verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness long for God's righteous character to be evident in other people's lives. Verse 8, in contrast to Jewish traditions that emphasized ritual purity, Jesus taught that purity of the heart was most important. Verse 9, peacemakers, those who promote God's message of peace through Jesus the Messiah will receive the ultimate reward of being called sons of God. Verse 13, as salt is beneficial in a number of ways, as a preservative, as a seasoning, etc., so are disciples of Jesus who influence the world for good. We're all familiar with the concept of persecution, right? Being burned at the stake, you know, being executed for the sake of Christ, being thrown to the lion's den. But what if I told you that biblically, even if someone simply mocks you or curses you or reviles you for identifying with or believing in Jesus Christ, that is a biblical form of persecution that if you're counted worthy of enduring, you should be, you should rejoice and be glad for that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you don't have to go very far back to see the prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted greatly. Many of them were. Moving on, salt and light, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christ came to fulfill the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here in this footnote, until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus confirms the Old Testament's full authority as scripture for all time, even down to the smallest parts of the written text. An iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. A dot likely refers to a tiny stroke or part of a letter used to tell a difference between Hebrew letters. 
not pass from the law. The Old Testament remains an authoritative account of divine testimony and teaching. Some of those teachings, however, such as sacrifices and other ceremonial laws, foreshadowed events that would be accomplished in Jesus' ministry, and therefore are not required of Christians. Until all is accomplished points to Jesus' fulfillment of specific Old Testament hopes, partly through his earthly life, death, and resurrection, and then more fully after his second coming. And then chapter 9, verse 13. The rabbis recognized the distinction between light commandments, such as tithing, garden produce, and weighty commandments, such as those concerning idolatry, murder, etc. Jesus demands a commitment to both, yet condemns those who confuse the two. And here in verse 20, the scribes and Pharisees took pride in their outward obedience to extra-biblical regulations, in other words, oral traditions, things they made up on the fly, garbage that has nothing to do with the Torah, has nothing to do with God's law, has nothing to do with the Bible. But they still had impure hearts. Kingdom righteousness works from the inside out as it produces changed hearts. Here we have, uh, in verse 21, we begin talking about anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going out with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And here in verse 27 we start talking about lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Here in verse 31 we talk about divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now down here in the footnotes we have uh, verses 21 through 48. You have heard that it was said, Jesus does not correct the Old Testament, rather, he corrects common misunderstandings of the Old Testament. So when Jesus says up here in verse 21, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus, and then Jesus goes on to say, if you're, Essentially, if you're mad at your brother, make it right. Uh, and that that has to do with the commandment that God gave to Moses concerning murder. 
He's not correct in God's law. He's not correct in the Old Testament. He's expanding upon it. He's sort of destroying these oral traditions and all this made-up garbage that these Pharisees and Sadducees and whatnot, all these different religious groups and that practice this sort of pseudo-Judaism have made up. Here in verse 21, Murder is prohibited by the Sixth Commandment. It carried the death penalty under Old Testament law. Verse 22, Anger. Anger typically includes a desire to damage or destroy the other person. Calling someone a fool is closely related to anger. It represents a destructive attack on the person's character and identity. Verses 23-24 First be reconciled. The one who initiates the reconciliation here is the one who has wronged the other person. Verses 25-26 Come to terms quickly. Failure to reconcile will have disastrous consequences on a human level, but much more so if one is not reconciled to God. Verse 28, with lustful intent. Literally, for the purpose of lusting for her, it is not enough to maintain physical purity alone. One must also guard against mental acts of unfaithfulness. Verses 29 through 30, right eye, right hand. The right side often stood for the more powerful or important. The eye is the medium through which one is tempted to sin. The hand is used to commit all sorts of sin. Cut it off. Jesus uses deliberate overstatement to emphasize the importance of maintaining exclusive devotion to one's spouse. Verses 31 through 32. This passage reflects the fact that divorce and remarriage were widely practiced in the first century. A certificate of divorce gave a woman the right to remarry. But I say to you, God's rule upheld marriage and protected women from being divorced for no reason. Jesus bases his teaching on God's original intention that marriage should be a permanent union of a man and woman as one flesh. Sexual immorality can refer to adultery or prostitution. Now, to close out this episode, I'd like to read this last page here. This is concerning Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and it's titled, Jesus, Our Lawmaker. And this is a note. Jesus was perfectly righteous, but he baffled his contemporaries. He acted like a rabbi, gathering and teaching disciples, but he violated sacred Jewish traditions that they wrongly considered part of God's law. He touched lepers, healed on the Sabbath, and welcomed sinners. He also seemed to teach against the law, restricting the freedom of men to divorce, and repeatedly saying, You have heard it was said, but I say to you. But Jesus' teachings and actions complete the law. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He declared by his own authority, for there is none higher, that no part of the law can fail. Jesus says that not even an iota or a dot of the law will fail. Iota refers here to a marking the size of a comma in written Hebrew, which can often be omitted without loss of meaning, like the silent E in spoken English. The Hebrew dot is also very small, really just a shift of the pen that differentiates similar letters, 
like H and K. Scripture is secure, without error. God's law, His instruction, like all His word, is imperishable. Jesus fulfills the law in two ways. He both keeps it and teaches it perfectly. He obeys every requirement of the law, and He does so with inward love. He teaches the law by instructing His disciples, us, to do the right things for the right reasons, not from fear of punishment or calculation of gain, but from love of God and neighbor. The law has no trifling commands. Each command expresses God's character, truth, and righteousness. Years ago, so-called believers dismissed belief in miracles as an impediment to faith. Today, they say biblical sexual ethics are an affront to modern sensibilities. One religion professor said as it is important to state clearly that we reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. This man, if a believer, ranks last in the kingdom. Did God actually say, introduces the oldest temptation? This is referring to Genesis 3.1. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds, dot, 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 you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't teach salvation by works. Jesus demands righteousness, but he also supplies it for us by his death and resurrection. Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 20, outlines his coming teachings. Disciples surpass scribes by grasping the heart, not just the manageable external code of the law. Disciples surpass Pharisees by living for the divine audience, not the human, and by seeking God's kingdom and righteousness. And so it seems that modern-day Judaism is not that much different from the Judaism of Jesus Christ's time. So, Jews have been trying to rewrite history when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the past 2,023 years. Well, minus 30, about 31 years, give or take. But, uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is a commentary on Jewish laws composed between A.D. 500 to 600. Therein is a text about Jesus' death. The Tractate Sanhedrin contains this passage. And this is directly from the Jewish Talmud, the book that modern-day Jews that practice modern-day Judaism revere and hold as, as their sort of what we would consider biblical doctrine. Um, but to them, I guess it's just their, I don't know, their book of codes or laws or whatnot. Um, the Talmud contains this little snippet about Jesus Christ. Jesus was hanged on Passover Eve. Forty days previously, he, the herald had cried, He is being led out for stoning because he has practiced sorcery and led Israel astray and entice them into apostasy. Whoever has anything to say in his defense, let him come and declare it. And nothing was brought forward in his defense, and he was hanged on Passover Eve. And there's an article here on Christian Courier, and it says, An analysis of this paragraph is extremely rewarding. First, one must observe that the document is written from the Jewish viewpoint, and thus, as expected, as hostile to Jesus in his defense of, of Jewish uh, jurisprudence, 
This makes it all the more valuable as a document for the support of Christianity. The first fact readily apparent is that the Jews responsible for the Babylonian Talmud, who had every motive for wanting to eradicate Christ from history, did not. That is telling. The historicity of Jesus is conceded. This is powerful testimony since a, mo since a few modern skeptics deny that Christ ever lived. G.A. Wells is one of the mo modern examples. He has attempted to argue that Jesus was purely a mythical character, yet even he admits that nearly all present-day scholars do not agree with his thesis. Now, I just found it interesting that this sort of Jewish hatred towards the, the Messiah that they should be welcoming and praising and worshiping is continuing to this day, and I thought I would share that with you because, you know, it pertains to what we're studying here. So, I believe that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time.